Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and on our panel today, we have Josh Adams. Hello. Michael Reese. Ship it. And today we're joined by two guests, David and Corey. David, can you say hi? Hello. And Corey, how are you doing? Hello and well met, travelers. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So we are glad to have them both on because uh, David and I originally started having some conversations on Twitter and we were having some discussion about involvement in the community and different events that are going on and things like that. And so we wanted to have a discussion about how we as members of the community can contribute to the community. And there's lots of different ways we can do that. Some are contributing Elixir code through uh, open source, uh, writing libraries, contributing to existing libraries, organizing meetups, attending conferences, and we are glad to have you guys on and talk about all this. So welcome. So could you guys give us a little introduction to yourselves? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, hey, I'm David Bernheisel. Uh, I work at a, a wonderful place called TaxJar. We're a remote company online. We do a lot of uh, software for sales tax. Um, and uh, one of the languages that we use is, is Elixir. Now, I, I've personally been working in Elixir for a couple of years now, but um, yeah, like uh, I, I've been loving it. Like it, it, I like to equate it to like when I moved to North Carolina, by the way, I live in Durham, North Carolina. And when I moved to Durham, I, I just, and Raleigh, both of the places I, I moved there and I said, you know what, I don't know what it is about this place, but it just feels like home. And so uh, before Elixir, I was writing in, in Ruby and, uh, and in JavaScript. And uh, a friend of mine um, introduced me to Elixir and oh my gosh, once I started, once I understood what was going on in Elixir, I was like, Oh man, this just feels like home, and 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 it, and it immediately like uh, signed up to Elixir forum and like subscribed to all the topics I could on Twitter and just started you know consuming everything I could. Yeah, and, and it took me like I don't know a, a good year or two before I could I could feel like a, a contributing member of you know the Elixir society. <laughs> um, one of the first things that I did was um, any anyone use ASDF here, the version manager. Yes, all the time. Very much so. Oh yeah. So, so when I, I started using it, I would you know you can type in ASDF like list list all Elixir and Erlang and stuff. It was one of the first times where you have to have like two languages installed in order to get this thing to run. And I was super annoyed that the fact that like you, you couldn't you couldn't see like Elixir one seven o OTP twenty two right. You just had to know that. And so uh, that was one of the first contributions I could make was uh, was making that like list all of the OTP versions as well. Oh, I was so proud of that. Such a simple thing, not even Elixir, it's all bash, but I just loved it so much. No, that is awesome because that is something that, uh, so I just have a, a little link to that pull request that you'd 
you put together and which was merged. Uh, congratulations. Because uh, that is that is a big step, you know, just to feeling like I am willing to invest enough time and effort into this and it might be totally rejected. You know, it's like, but making that effort and putting it out there, that's awesome. Because that is one of those things that has uh, bothered me that like when ASDF, I do ASDF list and, you know, to get a list or list all or whatever it is. And I didn't see, and I have to go to the Bob, the builder project thing to see what the options were because I wanted the paired Elixir plus OTP releases. So yes. So thank you. I will also add a thank you for that. I totally did not realize this is a thing that David had done. But um, as someone who does NERVS projects, uh, ASDF sh saves my baking quite frequently because when you're um, making a new image, you have to make sure it's compiled with the same version of OTP as what's going to be running on your embedded device um, and built into your uh, into the release. And um, I've gotten that wrong before, and it's really hard to debug. Get, things get a little bit weird. Um, and also there's a day or two where I lost a lot of time uh, trying to do code optimizations and benchmarking and then realized that I was actually working on a version of Elixir where I was running on OTP 21, but I, it was a version of Elixir that had been compiled under OTP like 19 or something. And so it was like, oh, like none of these things are quite the same numbers and therefore invalidate all of my results. So uh, that's been a big, a big boon. I had no idea that that uh, what had gone into that pull request to make that work, but it's been really nice just to be able to say in this project, OTP 22 and Elixir 1.9 OTP 22. So let's mention briefly what ASDF is in case members of the audience don't know, because a lot of people, when they get started with Elixir, you know, they're just going to go, let's say they're on a Mac, they might be familiar with Brew, they're going to do Brew install Elixir. Or if you're with Linux, you might just be, you know, installing the Elixir that's available in your repos or even from a PPA or something like that. So what is ASDF and why should someone care? We covered a little bit of the care, but like maybe uh, David or Corey, you want to take a stab at it and kind of explaining what ASDF is? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. So uh, I used, um, I, I didn't use ASDF. ASDF is a version manager. That's, it's the, you'll see that in the repo name, actually. It's ASDF-VM uh, version manager. And uh, for a lot of developers out there, myself included, it, it's rare nowadays to work in one language or one tool chain. And so um, I had started on Ruby, so I was really familiar with RBENV and RBM. Um, I had started to do a lot of React, and so I, I got, got in touch with NVM, you know, which is the, the Node.js version manager and, the, and then RBENV being um, the Ruby environment manager, I guess. Um, and so I, I guess I got annoyed that um, I just had to always carry these multiple tools around, you know, at that time it was just two. So big whoop. But once I got into Elixir and Elixir requires Erlang to run as well, I was like, Oh man, now I gotta, now I gotta manage four of these things. Um, ASDF, uh, I found ASDF and it, and it seemed to be the, the widely accepted one in the Elixir community. I don't know if that's true or not, but I, I just, I just know that that, um, you know what, I think, I, actually, now I think of it, I think it was Josh, uh, one of your posts uh, that had like your setup of NeoVim and, and Elixir, and you were using ASDF, if I remember right, I might be wrong, but um, no, that right. might be how I found it. Nice. Yeah, people have to talk about it, so people know about it. You yeah. Know, like, you get used to just having it available, so you kind of forget to tell other people that, hey, this is available. So yeah. one of the yeah, and if you're using it, you should use it for like all the stuff because it makes life a lot better. I like it a lot more oh, yeah. than NVM, for instance, and, and RVM, as much as I loved it, is uh, it's a mess. Yes. Yeah. So what I want to make sure people are aware about is uh, 
that there are plugins available to ASDF. So there's plugins for Ruby, Node, uh, Elixir, Erlang, and many other things. And so you, ha you can really use it, like Josh is saying, kind of for all the things. And one of the benefits is as you change, like in your terminal window, you can change directories into a, into a directory where you have your source code and it will automatically change the version of Elixir or Node or whatever it is that's for that project. And if you leave that directory and go into another directory for a different project and they're on different versions, it'll, you can just set it to use those versions for appropriate for that project, which really makes it easy to work with multiple versions and, and just work with that. And it's also a great tool for saying, uh, I'm going through the process of upgrading my project to Elixir 1.9, say, as an example. And so I can uh, try that out locally. And then if it, oh gosh, there's some breaking changes, we can't do it yet. I just flip it back to whatever the current version is I need to work on for shipping code. So it, it's a, a great tool to help manage the versions of the, the base system that kind of that you're working on for your development libraries. Yeah, it, it even includes uh, tools like non-language tools like Postgres, like database versions, which I thought was pretty interesting too. Well, cool. Well, we didn't invite you guys to talk about ASDF, so we don't want to spend too much time on there, but uh, we do, I'm glad to, we were able to talk about the contributions to ASDF and the difference that that makes to the community. Uh, so the other thing is, I know you guys have also been working on a, a date time parser. And when I first saw this, I kind of inspired reminded me of maybe like being inspired by moment.js. If people are familiar with that library in JavaScript, it lets you kind of take uh, different ways of expressing a date or a time. And it can be a little bit trying to be smart about how to interpret that. So it doesn't have to be strictly formatted just this way to be understood. So I'd love to hear about kind of where this came from and, and how that development went. Corey, do you want to um, give us some context, like from Taxstar's perspective of what problem we were coming up with? Yeah, absolutely. So at Taxjar, we started out as a Ruby shop and um, we had some problems that weren't, <laughs> weren't being served well. So we did some experiments with different languages and Go being one of them and Elixir the other, spun up the exact same service in both languages and um, Elixir won out for, you know, developer productivity and, you know, they were both very performant. So we decided to go that way. So now we're in the state where we've got services in, in Ruby and in Elixir. And as we migrate them, we need to support the way Ruby does things. And that's where this library came out of. We uh, do CSV parsing so customers can upload CSVs and they have a date field in there. And Ruby, if you do a date.parse on Ruby, you know, you'll, you'll get some amazing results. But then you also add in active support on top of that from Rails. It's even, if, it's even larger. And so we didn't want to break this experience for our customers. They've been using it for years. And so we needed to duplicate the results that they were getting in Ruby in Elixir. And looking at what was out there now, there wasn't anything that even came close. And so we decided to uh, take a stab at it. Cool. Because I know there's also, it reminded me there's a, a Ruby library, I think it's called Chronic, that would help with some of those kinds of things, which uh, I've worked with in the past. So yeah, that's cool. And so now you guys have open sourced that. Uh, did you get, have to get like special permission or anything internally to do that? What kind of, what kind of buy-in do you have uh, from like leadership to say, yeah, we're willing to let you guys share our super secret time secrets? Uh, the conversation was real easy. We wanted to give back to the community. 
and we said, you know, hey, bosses, can we do this? And they're like, sure, go ahead. That was that simple. Like, you know, we get so much value from what other people do that, you know, if we have a chance, we're absolutely going to give back. Yeah, I was, I was really proud to work for Techshare in that moment where it was that easy. Um, it's it, it, it can be difficult for some companies to let go of that kind of, you know, value sometimes. But, you know, with, with daytime parsing, it wasn't like, it's not core to what Techshare does. It's, it's, a, it's just a really helpful thing to keep us moving. Um, and yeah, like, I, I, I remember um, when we were developing this, one of our first goes at the, it was terrible. The first version of this was, which is absolutely <laughs> terrible. Um, it, it was essentially looking at like, so, so Timex, uh, a lot of folks out there might know Timex if they're working in Elixir. Timex is a, uh, a, a well, well-known uh, time conversion, daytime conversion library out there um, made by uh, Bitwalker, I believe. And, um, it, and, and it can, it can convert times uh, from different time zones. Uh, it can do math uh, on the time, so you can tell it to shift back a day or forward a day, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, it can also format uh, or convert a string into a proper daytime struct or time struct and all that. But the caveat is, and this is what we found in all of the other libraries out there, so it's not just Timex, um, is that you have to know the format in advance which wasn't always our case. Like we had, we had so many formats coming in, uh, some of it was just trash. <laughs> um, and so we'd have to, our first iteration of this, which is not released, thank goodness, uh, was just to take all of the known like ISO formats out there and just try every one of them and throw them in through Timex and just try, 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 try. And so if the, if the string matched the first format that we tried, it was super quick. But oftentimes that wasn't the case. <laughs> and it was towards the end of the list, which which ended up being incredibly slow. Like in our CSV parsing um, logic stuff, that was actually the bottleneck there, which was which was surprising to me. Um, so that that was the first iteration. And then once we realized that there was a performance bottleneck here, uh, I took it upon myself to find a, a faster way to do it. And that's you know I had we had some ideas about. Um, about how to do it uh, and Nimble Parsec library uh, by Platformatech, uh, which is uh, binary parsing where it can tokenize and, and parse the, the strings that you give it, um, made it incredibly easy. And so the hard part was just coming up with the rules, um, which is ambiguous. It's, it's, a, it's guessing at best. <laughs> I, so I'm actually fascinated about the whole area of Nimble Parsec and um, I've, I've seen people use projects like Leaks and Yek from the Erlang Standard Library before. So th this whole area of being able to take an, uh, a possibly very ambiguous string and find the structure in it, kind of discover that, um, that's always been something that interests me. Can you talk just a little bit about your experience with using Nimble Parsec? What was it like to try to learn it? Um, what do your results look like? Do you feel that it's now... Like, is it no longer anywhere close to being a bottleneck for your process or is it still sometimes slow? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Nimble Parsec made it really easy to code. It's, it's a code generator, for example. So it's, it's like you're, um, it's a DSL. And I know sometimes uh, Elixir folks tend to look down upon DSLs, but in this case, man, it was so helpful. Um, and I'm not ashamed of it at all. <laughs> um, and performance-wise, it's, uh, um, I, I, I 
I have a series of benchmarks in the library. So actually anyone can pull it down and, and, uh, and give it a shot and see what the results are for themselves. But for me on my machine, um, I compared it to uh, Ruby's time.parse and uh, with and without active support. And uh, in this implementation, and this implementation uh, ends up being about three times slower than what Ruby's is. Now, let me back that up. Um, Ruby's time.parse is implemented in C it, with, a, with a pile of regex. And it's, it's got a lot of like compile flags in there to figure out like, is this gonna be strict regex or, or you know, loose regex? And, um, and, and I, I looked through that source code and then I, I could make a, I could make a hundred percent sense of it. And so a lot of it was just me guessing at what this was trying to do and also comparing what other libraries are doing. Um, I found a Java one that was written in um, another DSL, I think called Ant. Um, and so that was easy, much easier to, to read and understand like what the rules are for, like when you see this sequence of, of characters, what, what it probably means. Um, so it's not machine learning. I'll make that clear. It's, it's definitely not machine learning. It's just, it's just looking at um, a sequence of bytes. And if it finds this, then go on to this other rule, you know, and, and execute this function. Yeah. And so the, the programming in Nimble's Parsec was like, here, here's some functions that'll generate code for you. And it'll uh, binary match on all of the strings from character to character. And then on the other side of it, you'll get um, a, a tuple with some information in it. And uh, one of those fields is a keyword list of the tokens that you have extracted out of that string. And so you take those tokens and you turn it into something useful, like a datetime struct. And so I, I wrapped all of those um, nimble parsec functions uh, into conveniences, and uh, and that's the library. In fact, uh, if you if you even go to the nimble parsec like documentation, they have like some really um, really like uh, rudimentary implementation of daytime parsing. <laughs> it's 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 like it, this one format. Like it, it doesn't. Anyway, it's just a, a good example. So I thought that was interesting that they're already thinking about it, and maybe somebody else has a library already, but they haven't released it, as far as I could tell. And one of the ways that uh, you can optimize something you've done in Nimble Parsec, which is pretty interesting, is you can pass a debug flag to it, and it gives you all the generated code. And you could actually like copy and paste that and not use Nimble Parsec as a dependency in your project, like just, just paste that in. And I watched Jose Valim do this, and I wish I had the link where he was optimizing something written in it. And, he, and it, it flags the, the function calls with like a number. So it'd be like, you know, do this one, do this two, do this three. And he was going through, he was like, oh, you know, this is 85 different functions. Let's cut this down. And so you can go through and say, oh, I can, I can short circuit here and do this here. And you can optimize your, you know, your parser and get something more performant at the end by, by looking at that and just counting the number of functions, which I thought was pretty fascinating. This episode is sponsored by GitLab Commit. GitLab's inaugural user event brings together the GitLab community to connect, learn, and inspire. Speakers will showcase the power of DevOps in action through strategy and technology decisions, lessons learned, behind-the-scenes looks at the development lifecycle, and more. Learn how to innovate the future of software development by registering today. GitLab Commit Brooklyn, September 17th, and GitLab Commit London, October 9th. You can find it at devchat.tv slash GitLab Commit. Yeah, I should clarify too, the performance, even though I mentioned it's three times slower than the Ruby um, implementation, uh, that's regex and then C. 
uh, it's still really fast. Like we're, we're talking, you know, microseconds here, I think. So it, it's, um, it's, it's suitable, you know, for, uh, for use in production. I mean, we're using it in production. Um, and there's, uh, there's several like formats that it supports right now. One of them is uh, Unix Epic Times. Um, I'm working on uh, Serial Times which I'd never heard of before, uh, before working with, with this, which is, uh, um, I don't know if, you, if you've ever encountered this, but like sometimes if you get a, an Excel spreadsheet from, from somebody else and they may have done something weird, like copy and pasted all values in uh, on top of the, the, the like displayed values in Excel, for example, uh, date times can get um, coerced into like an integer. So you might get something like 42 to 5 to 33 or something. And that's supposed to represent like some day in 2017. Um, so, you know, I always thought I was like, what is this? Like, <laughs> I, I don't, I didn't know that that was a recognized timestamp. <laughs> and uh, it turns out that that, that is just a, a I, I want to say it's, it's a Gregorian, but I'm not sure that that's actually the real, the real thing for it. But it's, uh, if you start at the, at zero, it's some. It's either 1899, like December 31st, or something like that, or or the first day of 1900, the year 1900, and then you just count up day by day, just one, two, three, four, uh, and you keep on going. And so the full the whole number would be a, a date and no time. But if you do a fraction of that number, um, then you get the time out of that. And so Excel and other spreadsheet programs will sometimes coerce those date time um, values into this this uh, serial time uh, format. And so uh, we don't have, it's not supported right yet, but I think the next version of daytime parser will support it. And uh, that, that'll, that'll be pretty cool. And then otherwise it's just, uh, you know, standard uh, ISO, you know, outputs of, of the dates, they'll get parsed into real uh, structs. Um, and also everything else that we found from our customers really. So that's, that's a, a wide, a wide sample set that we, we used. Um, but yeah, it, it got all of them. So it was, it was, Really exciting to get such a, a good result so early on when developing it. Do you have any plans to support star dates? <laughs> what? Uh, what I, is I, I, like Star Trek fans <laughs> that you'd even know that is. <laughs> star John Luke Picard is always like star date. I, I'm just remembering because he used like fractions of days. It sounds like the same thing as real time, but <laughs> probably a different starting point. That that's yeah. on the roadmap after we colonize Mars. So yeah. <laughs> Here, here soon. Here soon. We should yeah. get that in. <laughs> Can you imagine getting that in CSVs? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be interesting when you start. Yeah. Like what's interesting is just kind of the idea of uh, time zones, how they, they became a problem when travel became faster, like when they had trains. And then you had to try and figure out when a train would arrive at a different place and everyone had different timekeeping. So it's like it is a problem of faster travel. So yeah, as, as, as we grow out and expand into the solar system, it will be a problem. We'll have to have something different, but hadn't thought about that. All right. Well, there, are there any other kind of interesting lessons you learned when you're dealing with date times? I know time zones has historically just kind of been like a mess. Uh, I don't know if you had to deal with time zones at all, but just like, is there any kind of stuff that you learned? It's like, oh, this was an interesting little tidbit. David, do you remember the, uh, the zeros from Ruby? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, very confusing. But if you, 
if you do uh, in Ruby, if you require time in Ruby and then do time.parse like five zeros, you, you get some, you get a, a date back. And I have no idea where, what this day is supposed to represent. Uh, maybe, maybe somebody smarter than me is, has already figured out that it's some archaic, you know, daytime format or something. Wasn't it, but, wasn't yeah. it like today or something? It was, uh, I think it was like some year in 2000, it's, probably it's, like it's, yeah, January 1st. It was January 1st, 2000 at midnight. <laughs> there, there were some real surprising results and and when i started writing the test suite uh for daytime parser and like comparing it to what the ruby guys were were outputting i was like wow this is surprising i don't i don't know what this is supposed to mean i'm just not going to support this right now <laughs> i i even left some notes i think in the in the test suite um yeah there there is one interesting thing i learned uh while writing the test suite too is um i, I I, I don't know if this this is really good for a library where you where you just take an input and just output stuff, um, and so we wrote a macro around the test library. So so instead of just doing test, you know, the name and asserts the stuff inside, um, it's now a, a macro where it's like test daytime parsing, and you give it the input and then what the output should be on the other side. And inside that macro, it records the result, what I was given, and then what I was outputting. And uh, at, at the end of the test suite, and only when the whole test suite has run, uh, write all those results into a markdown file at the very end. And so like that test suite automates documentation, basically. So there's a markdown file in the repo just called examples. And so you can like comb through it and just see like, okay, if I give it this, what, you know, what will come out on the other side and um, hundred, uh, probably a hundred uh, examples in there. So I thought that was really interesting. And, and that after, um, that after the entire test suite runs, um, that hook was introduced, I think, in, the, in X unit for, uh, that came with the Elixir 1.8, I believe. Um, so I thought that was really interesting when I came across it. Yeah, there, there, was, uh, there was also another, another thing I want to keep in mind too, like even though that, that this is uh, parsing dates, dates and times, um, I default to UTC a lot of times in my own code. And I, I, I learned a little while ago that, you know, doing that for future times is probably not a good, uh, a good practice. Um, we can, you know, we'll, we'll link to the show notes, like a good post by Lau, but there's, um, there's an interesting problem for persisting future date times. And so I, I, I actually, I'm planning on like making an update to the readme of the daytime parser to like mention this, like this is a, a, a thing to keep in mind. So if you're parsing dates and times that are possibly in the future, um, the library right now, the, the parsing library, will default to UTC, and that's that's probably not a good default for for you if you're if you know that you're going to get future time zones, uh, future date times. I'm curious, wow. could you give a, a little bit of uh, explanation, just uh, like why that might be a concern? Why might I not want to do that? Yeah, yeah, because it, it, it turns out time zones and and all that is run by humans, and we like to change things. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know if this is enacted or not, but yeah, I think Arizona, aren't they saying that they're not going to do time zones anymore? So like that's, that, that is going to be, I say time zones. Um, that's not true. The, the, what but I meant daylight to say, savings. Yeah. Daylight saving. That's it. Yes. Which, you know, it affects time zones. So, um, yes. yeah. So, so the, the, the thing is, is if it's going to be persisted and, and you got the time, um, you got the time zone information like today, uh, and then some government, uh, you know, changes the rules about that in the future. 
you know, that time zone needs to be updated, but you've already done the translation based on old rules at this point. Mm. Um, and so you've, you've lost that, you know, and that knowledge to undo that, you know, now that it's persisted in, in UTC. So yeah, keeping the time zone with it is probably a better thing to do. Um, so that way you can, you know, just in time convert it when needed. Um, based on the current rules of that, you know, that period. Um, so that was a good post that opened my eyes. Cause like, <laughs> like time zone math is like the hardest form of math, like <laughs> calculus, easy time zones. No, I, I can't even, can't even do it. <laughs> so anything, yeah. you know, anything to like normalize that is always a good thing in my mind for UT. So that's why I always, I tend to just do everything in UTC. Um, but maybe that's not such a good idea. Interesting. Well, that is, a, that is a good thought. Uh, just, you know, the idea that people change the rules. And so, yeah, evaluate it closer to when you actually need to act on it. So that's cool. Yeah, so check Plus out the show notes. for lazy evaluation. <laughs> yes. Can, uh, oh, sorry, Mark. Can we I was going to say, just... check out the show notes to, uh, for a link to that article. Yeah, and I think we should throw in another one. This is another uh, post by Lau. Um, yeah, uh, where he talks about falsehoods that people believe about dates and times. Uh, and a few of them, I just, I was like falling out of my seat laughing about the, the time of my life that I've lost to these problems. I'll just give a couple of quick examples here. Um, so, uh, so like the fact that days contain 60 times, 60 times, 24 seconds. Um, turns out that's not true. There's like leap seconds that get thrown in, in like semi-arbitrary ways by a committee of people. Uh, at like an ISO standards committee. Um, the fact that uh, people who observe DST always start in the spring and then uh, roll back in the fall. And that's not true. Like in Morocco, the DST kicks in in the middle of summer. And anyway, it's like he just basically goes through everything you could almost write a property-based test around. Like everything that you, every time you think you have an invariant that you could write about a date or date time library, he's just like, no doesn't doesn't work that way because of this country in this year for this reason. So it's a it's a great read if you need a laugh about your own time zone problems. Oh uh, yes. I've I've encountered and, those problems before too. Me too. And for those reasons, I just wanted to say extra special thanks to anyone who openly decides that they're going to spend their free time dealing with date times for programmers because I just don't see it. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. And special thanks to Flau. Oh my gosh. It's, his contribution has been wonderful, uh, even to, you know, Core Elixir. Yeah, that reminds me that uh, while I was developing the stuff for supporting serial daytimes, apparently there was a bug in Lotus 1.2.3 a long, long time ago that Excel, um, that Excel replicated on purpose. Uh, there's a, they, they incorrectly believed that the year 1900 was a leap year or something like that. And so it's a, it's a, it's a day off, I think. It's a day off from January 1st, ni year 1900 to 1900, uh, March 1st, I think. Yeah. So that, that period of time, no, uh, it's not going to be right. Probably because almost everybody uses Excel. <laughs> wow. So you still have to deal with off by one errors historically. Yeah. All right. Well, I'd love to transition into another way that people can contribute to the community. And one of those ways is uh, organizing or even just attending and contributing to meetups. So I uh, organize a Utah Elixir meetup. Michael has an online-based nerves meetup. And David, I think you're also running a meetup. Uh, which one is that? And can you tell people about it? 
Yeah. Um, so I help run the Triangle Elixir um, meetup. It's all about Elixir right now. And it uh, serves the Triangle in North Carolina, which consists of uh, Chapel Hill, Raleigh, and Durham. And uh, yeah, uh, running meetups is hard. It's, it's harder than I thought it would be. I didn't start this meetup uh, for the record. So like it's, it's been started by some other wonderful folks that have, uh, have since, you know, uh, had families and not has, has had enough time to, you know, put in, put into, to leading the thing. Yeah. It, but it's hard. Like it, it's hard because, you know, you, you go into leading meetups thinking that everybody is, is super excited like you are. <laughs> and there are some of those out there, but um, by and large, like, it's, you know, I, I'm not a hype master. So I, it's, it's, it's difficult for me to, to like try to hype people up about this, you know, this thing that I'm, I'm personally, you know, very passionate about, but um, you know, other folks just aren't going to be as, as passionate. And it, and it, that doesn't mean that they're not passionate about it. It's just that everyone else has things going on in their lives that they're, you know, that their that their minds are, you know, on instead. And, you know, when you have like a position, like leading the meetup, uh, kind of the responsibility is really on you to, to be, to be the cheerleader, um, you know, and, and it can be, it can be difficult sometimes. And then too, like maybe this is the, the, the entrepreneurial side of things, but like, you know, sometimes you, it's difficult, um, to, to get that spirit going and keep it going. Um, you know, when, when you're in a work life cycle where, you know, you just kind of get up, you do your work thing, you go home, you eat dinner and then, you know, rinse and repeat. Um, and, and so to break up that, that routine and, and remember that like, there's this community of folks around you that might be worth like rallying together about this, you know, about this common, you know, like likeness, like elixir. Um, it's hard to get out of that routine sometimes. And so like the entrepreneurial spirit, spirit, I think maybe sometimes I lack that, but that entrepreneurial spirit, I think it, it makes it easier for folks to just break out of your, your usual routine and, you know, go do this other thing uh, and get people together. I would love to have a little discussion just for people who are perhaps thinking about starting a meetup that's closer to where they are because they can't attend one. It's too far. Uh, just what are some options that people have and what are some things they need to think about? Um, I'll just kind of start with a few. One of the thoughts is, uh, it is hard in that I remember, uh, so like the Utah Elixir meetup, I kind of took it over. It had, you know, it was started by someone else and there's already kind of an audience that was kind of created and uh, they uh, ran out of kind of uh, inertia and uh, I was able to pick, pick that up and take it on, take up the baton. And so that was helpful. Uh, but at the same time, I remember giving, you know, announcing that we're going to have a meetup and I'd be preparing topics. And there might be nobody come. There might be three people that come. And, you know, sometimes there'll be like six. And it's like, yay, it was a good night. We had six people there. You know, uh, so like, what, what can people expect? What are your, your guys' experience? What have they been? What, what should they expect when they're starting a meetup? And, you know, what's up? Yeah. Yeah. Personally, for me, yeah, it's, it's I, I'm, I, maybe I'm a dreamer. I, and I like to dream that, you know, it's going to be all lights and fireworks or something and people are just so pumped to be there with you. And, but it turns out like, that's, that's, you know, I, I'm not that exciting <laughs> on stage <laughs> and it, you know, we're talking about development and code. Right. And, uh, but where, where I've, I've actually found a lot more value, um, surprisingly is, is, is that meetup is, isn't really just about like technical knowledge and sharing that it's, uh, it's building the relationship. It's it's actually building that community around there, 
And so the way that I got started into this meetup, um, before I took it over, I started a, a, a like a side meetup or a, a part of it where we would have a project night. Um, and so it was focused on actually doing code and like doing kind of pair programming kind of stuff um, on whatever, you know, people brought. Um, and I would always have a backup idea of things that we could work on if no one else had an idea. Um, and we still do that. And that's a regular thing. And you know, oh my gosh, the, like the, the relationships that come out of that is far more valuable than, um, you know, than what you're actually technically learning there. And so making that a regular thing and like a, a scheduled thing that just happens every Wednesday on, you know, monthly or something like that, you know, it's, it's, it's really easy to get into that routine then, at least for me. And the, and the regulars that come up with that, uh, come to those meetups, like they, they become true friends. And that, that's like, that's the whole point of this, I think. Um, and, and you have a common topic to talk about, which is, which is great. But, uh, most of the time we talk about, um, other things that are going on in other tech circles or, you know, like, Hey, how's the job going? Or, um, like I just bought a new car. <laughs> it's, it's so big, <laughs> something like that. Um, yeah, that's been really surprising, but otherwise like for the big event kind of meetups where there's a, there's a stick, maybe even a stage or a podium or a, a, a big projector or something like that. Um, those, those are, those are a little bit harder for me. So maybe I tend to favor like the smaller meetups. Um, and so if you're somebody that is, you know, going into this thinking that like hundreds of people are going to show up or something like that's probably not going to happen. unfortunately <laughs> now it, in some areas like the RTP area, the triangle area that I'm in, you know, there, there is room for that. And so there might be room in your, you know, your local area as well. But I think those tend to be a little bit more polyglot centric. And um, I found, I find a lot of value going to those um, as a, as a member. And I've given the talks uh, at those as well. So I try to um, essentially like evangelize a little bit of Elixir there at those polyglot um, meetups. And so the one around here is a uh, modern web and it's uh, typically J JavaScript heavy, but um, there's a lot of good stuff that's going on there. And I like to, I like to uh, insert a little backend development and Elixir there uh, every once in a while. So yeah, th those are some of the lessons that I've learned is, is like the personal relationships is, is much more rewarding to me. Um, sometimes it happens in smaller meetups um, and don't get discouraged. <laughs> I've got, I've been, I've been discouraged a lot. Uh, uh, you know, it, when you go into a, a meetup thinking that like there's going to be hundreds of people there, uh, it's not going to be, it's not going to happen probably. <laughs> and that's okay. That's totally okay. Perseverance, I think is a, is a really good character trait to have as a, as a meetup uh, organizer. Yeah. I'll just, I'll add, I think the desire for community and relationships is pretty core to making it work. So before I organized the NERVS meetup, uh, I was helping to organize a Utah Ruby users group meetup. And I helped to organize that for a couple of years. And um, I, uh, similar to some of the other experiences that I shared here, the group already existed. The previous maintainer was moving away. Um, and, and so I took over doing some of the organization. It, it does take a lot of energy. It takes energy sometimes on days where it's hard to give energy to something like that. But, um, you know, and sometimes there'd be like, you know, five people that showed up and that could be really discouraging. But I remember one time after a small meetup, getting a message from someone who was just coming out of a boot camp, and, uh, and this person sent me a message and they're like, that was so amazing. Every time I've tried to go to something like this, I just end up feeling so intimidated and people were really nice and, and people like came up to me and asked me how I was and how I was feeling about programming. And they gave me like introductions to jobs. 
And thank you so much for putting this together. Um, I think you kind of have to hold on to those messages uh, because th those, that's a huge value. Uh, just helping one person bridge that gap into the world of having a job like this is actually pretty, like that's a pretty significant change the world around you. And if, you know, one of those people sent me a message, it probably means there were several others who had an experience like that and, um, and their messages were directed maybe to other people at the group. So uh, I, I would say anyone wanting to organize something, kind of prepare yourself that building a community and building relationships is the primary positive outcome that you should be looking for. I think getting standing ovations or um, YouTube videos with millions of views or something like that Probably not in the cards. There are better ways to accomplish those goals if those are what's uh, invaluable to you at this time. But helping other people to get jobs is an amazing thing. Helping people to form relationships. Um, and I, I wish I could find it. I did a quick search, but Avdi Grimm, a little while ago, he's, a, he's someone I've followed for a long time. And he had a tweet where he just said something along the lines of the, the biggest return on investment he's seen throughout his career is making friends and talking to other human beings and that those relationships time after time turn into the introduction to the awesome next job that you're going to get or, uh, or an introduction to a programming hero or uh, getting connected to a project that totally solves the problem that you've been banging your head against the wall on. Um, so I'll, I'll just second that. That has also been my experience and it has become increasingly true as my career has progressed, right? Like in the first five years of my career, there weren't a lot of those moments. And in the next five, there's some more. And uh, I'm in the line, I'm like the years 11 to 15 right now. And it feels like it's happening a lot. So I would say it's worth putting in that work, especially honestly, if you're early in your career, it's a great time. It'll feel uh, very intimidating, but it's an amazing time in your career to get out and to do some speaking at meetups, helping to organize, um, even if you just go to a meetup and you walk up to any one of the organizers and say, hey, is there something I can help with? There's probably like a, hey, if you could help to find one person to give a talk next month, that would be great. There's probably something that they would love your help with. And being a little bit of a, a prop to help someone else who's not at a great place to give a lot of energy to something will help that community to thrive and will also help other people to, to get value out of that meetup. And that's almost certain to come back around to you in some way. Yeah, huge props on that tip. There were literally, literally zero times someone came up and said, hey, can I help with something on the meetup? And I said, no, no, I don't have anything I need help with. <laughs> yes. But I, I will also kind of plus one what Michael was saying there, just uh, the value of the human relationship. I remember when I was younger and you know, kind of new in my programming career, I felt it was insincere. To, to go and kind of schmooze, right? Like I was trying to, you know, network for selfish reasons. And that was my only motivation. And it's just kind of like the whole wrong mindset. You know, like just like what Michael and David have both been saying, it's really about meeting people and just feeling like there is a sense of community. I'm not in this alone. There are other people that find this cool technology and, uh, and, and then just being able to help other people. Like, yeah, getting positive, you know, if you go to a meetup, say thank you. You know, that, that right there is contributing to the ongoing success of the meetup. Uh, just going there and just talking to people, just saying, hey, how are you just meeting them? Uh, having those sideways discussions, not even with the presenter or anything, just like building the community. And that is really how you find uh, jobs and opportunities. It's just because of networking. It's like, hey, 
people get a sense of who you are and, oh yeah, they have a good culture. I know where they, might, where they would fit. I know somebody who's looking for somebody and they're kind of right at their skill level and, and it just makes connections. So don't go into it with the mindset of I'm doing this to self-service myself, but you know, just kind of become part of the community. We've been recording Ruby Rogue since 2011, and we've talked to a lot of people who have had a really deep influence, not only on the programming community, but also on the Ruby community. And as we've talked to these people, it's become apparent to me that we talk a lot about the things that make them interesting that they've done. But we don't really get into how they got into programming or how they came up in their career, how they got to be the person who invented whatever library or, or technique that they came on the show to talk about. And so I put together a show where we actually highlight these things. We talk to them about how they got into programming. We talk to them about how they got into Ruby, maybe how they got into Rails. We get a little bit deep into what makes them tick and why they are the way they are. And then we talk about what they're working on. We talk about the things that make them well-known or make them interesting. And a lot of times, it's the stuff that goes beyond the code that really makes these people tick and makes them the kind of people that we want to hear about. And so I put together a show called My Ruby Story. You can find it at myrubystory.com. And it's where I interview these people and just get the stories of these people and how they came into programming. So if you want to hear inspirational stories or get ideas on how you can actually advance your career, then go check it out at myrubystory.com. So one other thing I just want to mention is the idea when you're going to host a uh, meetup, uh, most of the people who come are going to be new to the language and they're just checking it out. They just kind of want to know what's, what is this Elixir thing? And they're kind of looking to be taught. Uh, so, you know, sometimes uh, like for our meetups, we'll have maybe a lightning talk kind of intro, shorter thing. And lots of people at different skill levels can give a lightning talk. Even if it's just like, this is the tech I've been playing with, or, Hey, I found this cool date time parser that these tax guys put out. And, you know, let, let me show you how it's helping solve a problem of mine. Just little things like that contribute to the whole overall experience for everyone. And, uh, and then sometimes, you know, you might have a bigger presentation that goes really deep on something. Half of the audience will be like, shoom, over their head. Uh, so you kind of want to keep in mind who's coming, what they're looking for. Ask people, you know, what would you like to learn about? What would you like to talk about? Any other tips you guys have? I would say from the other side of the fence, if you're not, if you don't have time or the skill level to run a meetup for your language, just show up. Like the most discouraging thing to an organizer is when there's no one there, you know, they, they took time out of their life, their family, whatever to present and put this on and, and there's zero people like, you know, that's, that kills a meetup. I've seen it happen in my area where just people stop showing up and, you know, they die and, that, and that's a tragedy. So if you're not there, just go say thank you. And that's, that's giving back and that's going to go a long way in, in your community. Yeah. The value of presence, I think is really, yeah, it's really important just being there. Um, yeah, I tend to, yeah, just thinking about it myself. Yeah. There, there's a lot of meetups here in the, the triangle area and uh, a lot of JavaScript things, a lot of uh, DevOps things. And I'll, I get notifications from meetup.com all the time. That seems to be the place where everyone organizes these. Um, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of times I'll just hit archive <laughs> on that email and just not go. But you're right. Yeah, just, uh, just being there and being part of it, you, you'd be really surprised at what value you would get out of that. Um, another tip uh, is, uh, you know, as, as an organizer is 
um, try not to make, yeah, I think we've already said it, but try not to make it a, a show. It's, this is about real connection, I think. And, um, you know, lightning talks are really good about this where you provide a variety of topics, but then also of people and personality. Um, so if you find yourself uh, constantly being the speaker, probably, probably need to find, uh, some variety of voice, um, and, uh, mix it up. I think everybody's going to be in for that. And to, uh, side benefit is that it won't burn you out either. Um, it's really easy to, yeah, just keep on pouring and pouring and pouring. And then you get to this place where you just don't think that everybody is reciprocating the way that you thought they should. And so you burn yourself out and maybe stop doing the meetup. That's a, that's a bad thing. But yeah, if you organize like a lightning talk, maybe, you know, don't put the pressure on everybody or on one person. Um, every, it should be a lot less pressure to just come up with like a five minute thing of, Hey, this is something cool I learned this week and, um, and show it off. Doesn't even, doesn't even have to be about the top, you know, about Elixir, for example, it'd be about anything. Like I learned this cool pattern in react. Uh, is there anything about that, you know, like this in, in Elixir or just leave it at about react. Everybody's doing react nowadays anyway. So those are the, some of the tips that I have. Um, it, yeah, main, the main point of the, the main responsibility of the organizer, I think, is just to provide a space and a good feel for everybody to come. Uh, I'll do another tip for organizers is find people who are new to programming um, that show up and really encourage them to come back and give a lightning talk or just to share what project they're working on at work or whatever it is. Um, I've found that there's a real sense of um, like everyone wants the person to succeed who's talking, but that's actually amplified when someone is perceived as being relatively new, either new to this language or new to programming or whatever it is. Actually, you know, people love the underdog story that is kind of baked into a lot of us. And um, I think the whole, the whole group, like your most experienced programmers a lot of time, they love to see a young person come in and be enthusiastic. And even if their content is uh, not the most effective or not the most nuanced, the, the old timers are going to be like totally rooting for that young person to go. And also a lot of times if you are, you know, you're, let's say you're later in your stages of having a family and, or balancing those, uh, those time constraints with trying to run the meetup, being able to lean a little bit on some of the people who are newer and who have a lot of enthusiasm and maybe have more time availability than you right now is a great way to kind of get a sidekick, someone who's going to come in and be able to do some of the rallying and keep the energy going. There was, you know, there was a nine month period when I was organizing a local meetup where I didn't have a lot of energy to put into it, but there was a few people who were, um, had, you know, in their first programming jobs and they just felt like unit testing was going to solve the world's problems. And that was actually an amazing period of time to be in that meetup group because it was very, um, it was a very positive place. It was very idealistic. Um, and honestly, as someone who sometimes was uh, skeptical about my software career, it was really infectious to be around these people who were so enthusiastic and all the skepticism in the world couldn't divert them from saying like, no, I'm going to go deliver a useful piece of software to my users that makes their life better. And it really reinvigorated me for a time. Um, so uh, I just think anything you can do to encourage people who are newer to your language, to your community, to your area, whatever it is, 
just try to get them involved and let them be a, a strong voice in that group. It almost, it has, it has universally paid off for me when I've tried to emphasize that. That is awesome. Yeah, I totally agree with all of that. And uh, it, it really does, it, enthusiasm becomes infectious. And you, know, you showing your enthusiasm, seeing other people, like Michael's talking about other people like being new to something and they're having this enthusiasm of like, wow, Elixir can do this. Well, like pattern matching is kind of like they're just seeing the light bulbs switch on is a, a very rewarding experience. Uh, so it's just, it's awesome. Uh, so I would love to hear about other ways uh, we contribute to the community. And one of those is conferences. And like right now, this is recorded just prior to ElixirConf being in Denver. Uh, and so this will go out after it's already over. Yay, that was awesome. I was glad to see everybody there. That was cool. <laughs> Best ElixirConf yet. <laughs> I can't believe they announced that. <laughs> Right. And, uh, but you know, that is a big conference and people may not be able to make it either for scheduling reasons or cost or because maybe their company is not willing to pay for it. I know in the early days when I was just started attending conferences, I was paying for it all out of my own pocket and I was going to Ruby conferences. And so I was choosing the cheaper conferences and the regional conferences. And I had wonderful experiences doing that. And there are a lot of great Elixir regional conferences. And so a lot of those tend to be single track, which means uh, there's just one set of talks going on. And what the, there's some benefits for that. And one of the ones I've noticed is you don't miss a talk uh, that you want to attend. And th there's a great uh, break for everyone to, to meet and kind of mingle. And they tend to be smaller in terms of attendance size. So you get a chance to meet more people and actually create connections. I'd be curious about your guys' experience with conferences and, and what you'd recommend. Yeah, uh, I've only been to ElixirConf, so I don't have a lot of experience there. But the last time I went, which was in 2018, I told myself, like, this is great. And this is when LiveView was announced. Um, and I think when Scenic uh, UI was published, I was like, oh, this is so great. Like, this, this conference was incredible. Um, and you get to see, you know, the folks that um, have contributed to Elixir so so immensely, you know, put um, faces to names. Um, but despite that, after the conference was over, I told myself I was going to go to Gig City Elixir and the Big Elixir, which are um, on my side of the country. So it was, it'd be a little bit cheaper for me to get there. Um, and yeah, I mentioned this when I was talking about meetups. Is that I think I tend to to favor you know smaller crowds, more um, personal you know uh, personal conversations and. Um, you know, going out to lunch and dinner with folks. And uh, I feel like that that might be able to happen a little bit better at, at smaller conferences. Maybe not. I'm sure you could, of course, you can have dinner and lunch with folks anywhere you go. But um, but yeah, the, the Gig City Elixir, which is in Chattanooga, and uh, the Big Elixir, which is uh, in New Orleans. Um, and uh, that's actually later this year, October for Gig City and uh, November for the Big Elixir. Um, and then Corey, you've, you've been to a couple smaller ones too. Do you, do you remember what, what those were like? Yeah. So my last conference was Impex down in LA. Um, so regional local conference. Um, and to Mark's point, like the highlight for me was that it was single track and, um, Michael's talk, um, on nerves was actually my favorite and and to be honest, if I was at a multi-track conference, I probably wouldn't have gone to see his talk because I don't work in nerves. You know, I didn't think I would in the future. And 
it was so entertaining. It was so approachable. And it's like, wow, you know, this is stuff I could do, you know, for fun. And I, it made me excited about nerves. And that was a huge benefit to me and kind of an encouragement to check out those local things and, you know, sit through those talks. And you, you might be surprised about, you know, things that you would, wouldn't have seen otherwise. MPEX was a really well-run regional conference for sure. That's actually the only Elixir conference I've gone to so far, which uh, I guess conference is the way I need to give back more uh, to the Elixir community. But it's just something that's hard to make time for at, at this stage. So I'm actually really bummed. I, I will have missed ElixirConf by the time this uh, podcast comes out. But hopefully I can get uh, a little out to a few more this this next year. And I also, I dropped a link for... Uh, the Elixir Lang repo keeps a wiki page about upcoming conferences. And I was just scrolling through it, and it's pretty notable how much uh, the number of conferences has changed. Like in 2015, there are two conferences listed for the year 2015. In 2016, it jumps up to uh, like six. And by 2019, there's 15. So, um, so, I mean, this is a really cool time to be in the Elixir community there's going to be a lot of regional conferences that are relatively new that haven't been around for very long. That means there's organizers who really, really want to find someone who's interested to talk and interested to share their excitement and their enthusiasm about Elixir with the people in that area. Uh, a lot of those regional conference organizers are people who just want to see more Elixir happening in their geography because they want there to be more Elixir programmers to hire. They want there to be other Elixir jobs for people to be able to go get jobs in. Um, my experience has been that most of these regional conference organizers are uh, extremely community oriented and, uh, and they're great people to work with. They're great people to get to know because again, a lot of times uh, I've, I've seen lots of times where my next great job opportunity came from just having known uh, someone who organized a meetup or organized a regional conference. And they think of me when they hear about a job opening down the road. So a uh, big plus one for going to regional conferences. Um, and I guess I'll try to take that message to, to myself as well and get out to a few more of those next year. Yeah. I, I've been trying to, um, uh, on this note too, I've been trying to get to um, non Elixir conferences where they're, you know, it's just about development in general. Um, and securing like a, a speaker spot there to talk about um, lessons I've learned in, in development and then using Elixir as an example, you know, as, of, as a good example. <laughs> and uh, more serving more as like, here's some good things that I've learned. And it's because of the awesome patterns that I got out of um, Elixir and OTP, for example. Um, and I'm sure that that's going to introduce Elixir to a lot of folks that may not have been exposed to it before. Um, and so I'm hoping that like Elixir is, it, it even breaks out of our, our own, um, our own organized conferences and that we can, you know, start showing up a little bit more at, at these other non-Elixir conferences. I've, I've been working on that. I haven't gotten one yet, but may, maybe that's, maybe somebody out there will get an idea, um, and get out there. One, one that's here in Raleigh is called all things open. Uh, so I've been, I've been trying to get there to talk about Elixir. And it is often those smaller conferences where you have a, greater opportunity to be a presenter uh, just because you don't have so many headline names that are attending. So it's like you do have an opportunity to share uh, wisdom experiences and things like that. So like uh, I uh, presented at an Open West conference 
uh, about two years ago and talked about software estimating, you know, estimating time. So there are lots of ways that we can kind of contribute to the community. And I just want people to kind of be aware and kind of be thinking about some of the opportunities that might exist for them. One last topic I thought was interesting is just uh, David and I had kind of talked about this, like how meetup.com is this place where it is a great mechanism for discovery and finding what other meetups are available and around you. And it's free as a, uh, a, an attendee to uh, kind of register and register interest in different topics and kind of be notified about opportunities. One of the problems is, is it's super expensive. Uh, like it's recently become more expensive. So it's, uh, what is it, $200 a year now? Yeah, 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 they and, just raised the prices. I got, a, I got an email from them. And, uh, you know, I've always, I, I don't know, I, I have mixed feelings. I, I really like meetup.com. They're, they're good. Like they're the place for organizing meetups. They've coined it. They're their Kleenex of tissues, you know? <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I took over the, the fees for it and I'm just paying them out of pocket and uh, it's fine. You know, it's, it's not bad yearly, you know, but once I got, once I got the email saying, Hey, we're going to raise prices. And now it's just about $200 a year. It got me thinking. I was like, oh, oh man, how, how much do I really like Meetup? To, <laughs> you know, that they're going to remind me of how expensive they are. Because when you think about it, they're just a, they're just a calendar and an email list, right? Yeah, <laughs> I know. And some of it, more than that, but. <laughs> so well, some of it, like, wow. they don't even do their job very well. So, <laughs> at least from my experience. But yeah, uh, someone someone needs to organize an activity pub focused meetup replacement where you can host your own and people can put new front ends on it, but it's shared data. I I agree. I think this I think this is a little mark this is a market right there's for a, some disruption. There's a really solid activity pub implementation in Elixir. One of the main Mastodon servers is written in Elixir. Oh wow. Nice. Uh, so I did want to let people know if they're considering uh, hosting a meetup, you know, having a company to sponsor it is helpful financially. Uh, also, uh, when you're getting started and your attendance, uh, people who are registered as members is small, it doesn't cost anything. Uh, one of the things I've considered doing is um, making it so that it's, I'm going back to the free model and just saying, and just using it for discoverability and then pointing them somewhere else. You know, here's a mailing list to join. Here's a, you know, website. I don't know. But. That's sneaky, sneaky. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it tends to, uh, to it tends to, like, be a, oh, what, what do you call it? Like, I, I can only equate it to like high school stuff. You know, where you get these like honorifics in high school, but what do they really mean? Like, when you graduate, you get these little cords because you're part of the honor society. What does that really mean? you paid the membership fee, you know, <laughs> you didn't actually do anything. Um, and so I, I find that, uh, I find that happening a lot, uh, something like that on, on meetup.com where folks just like, they join all of the meetups in the area and they get these notifications and that's the value of it. But as an organizer, <laughs> that means I have like 800, you know, uh, members and there's no chance for me to be able to get back to the free, the free model at this point, you know, like, meetup.com they know this they know what they're doing i know mm. all right well i'm not here to to bash on anyone who's actually providing a service at least i'm not going to do it anymore <laughs> here's what quick pro tip run an online meetup because then people just find you on twitter <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i saw somebody doing one on a github.com and they do the the meetups like via issues on there i thought that was an interesting idea 
Oh, that's cool. Because that's another good social media platform too, you know? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So there's lots of opportunities. Keep an open mind, look around, uh, just find, find ways. I think it's great to just find ways to contribute. And one of those is just being willing to volunteer to someone else's meetup. You know, just saying, hey, I'm willing to give a presentation, a 15-minute presentation about something. That is huge as an organizer. That is such a big deal. And it's uh, really welcome. So is there anything else we want to talk about uh, before we transition? All right, let's go to picks. Josh, do you have something? I think I do. So I'm just going to share. I might have shared this before, but uh, not for a while at least. So the Elm time package, because we were talking about dates and times, and uh, it's a really solid argument for storing your times, like your historical times, just in POSIX time. Um, and I like it. So just thought I'd share that. Very simple pick today. Cool. Michael, how about you? All right. I have a pick here. Um, it's called Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. It's a, it's a podcast. It's also a book. Um, so this, it takes a second, right? Bear with me. It is fan fiction. That's the bad news. <laughs> Literally everything else after that is much better. <laughs> so, um, so I have I became kind of fascinated with uh, scientific methodology and how I can apply it to engineering several years ago. And around that time, I somebody else gave me a suggestion to listen to this podcast, and I've now listened to the whole story three times, and I'm on my fourth listen right now, which is like I, I'm not generally someone who rereads books multiple times. But the thing is, it's just packed with references to like uh, interesting scientific studies and uh, things about cognitive bias and how to make rational decisions and when you're lacking information. Um, it is it is just like packed with advice that I actually now use on a very regular basis in terms of how I write software, how I run a team of software engineers. So um, for me, it's it's been ex an extremely valuable source of learning. Uh, and it's packaged into uh, a very fun to listen to format where you have some familiar characters. Um, but the primary pitch of it is if instead of growing up in a really terrible family situation, Harry Potter was instead raised by loving parents. One of his parents is a, a college professor. And so he grew up um, basically being very aware of things like rationality and probabilities and statistics. And so when he gets to the wizarding world, he's just like, what is this? And he's trying to study magic as a scientist um, and then gets caught up in all sorts of interesting adventures that um, force him to realize that there's lots about the world he still doesn't understand. So um, I don't know. There, there's no way I can give a, a recommendation which is too strong to at least give one episode a listen uh, because I think you'll, you'll know by the end of the first episode if it's something you're into or not. That's my uh, pick. That sounds fun. It reminds right. me of Marvel's What If series. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Nice. Uh, so the one I was going to share is um, coming. So two days ago, uh, Phoenix Live View was officially re released to HexPM. And prior to that, it was uh, in order to use it, you'd basically having to uh, do a GitHub link to the, the GitHub repo and like the master branch or a tagged branch or something. So, you know, I realized that uh, after the, you know, two weeks after ElixirConf, maybe that's old news, but uh, it's uh, so, still something I thought was cool. So to make up for that possibly being outdated now, I was going to share one other. Uh, so there's this fun little website uh, that is called anvanka.com, I guess. And 
what it is, is you can, it'll, it'll draw dependencies for JavaScript libraries that are on NPM. So you can pick any library that you want and just kind of visually see as it goes and pulls up all the dependencies. And like you can do this for libraries that you use, be it React or Vue or uh, Ember or anything like that. Uh, you can also use it. So I, I'm dropping in the link to the show notes is one where it gives a 2D kind of split out of Webpack. And you just kind of got to watch this because it just kind of keeps going as it keeps discovering more stuff. And, uh, but it helps you to think about uh, the dependencies and what we build on top of. So there's two aspects to that, right? There's the, we build on top of the shoulders of giants, like we're, we're already standing tall on top of this layer and we're going further. But then there's the other aspect of, I have a responsibility because I may be delivering these things and depending on these things uh, for my project or my users, and they may have security vulnerabilities. So it's kind of being aware of things like that. So that's it. That's uh, two for me. David, how about you? Yeah, um, I have a, a non-programming uh, pick. It's a, it's a site called uh, OCE Remix. Um, it's just a website that collects video game music remixes, and they're pretty high quality. Um, if you're anything like me, you, you can't listen to words, you know, uh, when, you're, when you're developing. And uh, I really wish I could be that person that could listen to, like, podcasts, um, like, during work. But I just can't. Like, the words, I, I concentrate too much on it. And so uh, in place of that, I try to listen to some wordless um, music. And so sometimes it's just, you know, classical music. Or, but a lot of times it's, it's video game music, which is actually designed to be, you know, stimulating uh, certain areas of, the, of, your, of your brain without, you know, stealing your focus. Um, now, these aren't the original soundtracks. These are, uh, you know, remixes of them. And it's all free. Um, so you can listen to them on the, uh, on the website. And they have, they even produce albums, which is kind of neat. So um, I grew up with uh, video games. So like Zelda is my jam. Uh, Zelda, Mario, Final Fantasy, that kind of stuff. And they all have incredible soundtracks. And so um, this, this site collects a lot of good remixes on those and they're, they're really easy listens. So do you find yourself like with your thumbs moving, like a little jump sequence? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a fidgeter. My wife hates it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Corey, how about you? All right, I got two picks here. Um, one of them's a job at Techstar. We are currently hiring for an Elixir uh, engineer, uh, remote currently open right now. So if you're looking for a job, you know, hit it up. Uh, the second one is Jose Valim did a, some Twitch streaming. Um, some people are not familiar with this. I learned so much from these videos. Um, it's raw, uncut, you know, so it's hard to watch at times because they're so long. But if you can sit through them, like you can see him like breaking the problems apart using, you know, the Elixir language. And it, it's awesome. Like I, I highly recommend everyone to go through and, and watch those videos of, of Jose Valim. So those are my picks. Very cool. I, I'd totally forgotten that I'd heard about those, but I'd never actually gone and checked them out. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes so you can see what that looks like. All right. Well, I've had an awesome time talking with you guys. I know we've come up uh, to the end of our time. If people would like to get in touch with you or follow up on a topic or follow you online, where would you direct them to go to do that? Uh, for me, it'd probably be Twitter. Uh, I'm on Twitter as Bernheisel. And uh, yeah, we'll be in the show notes. I've got an old blog that hardly gets updated, but all my contact info is there. So uh, schmitty.me. Cool. And we will have links to those. All right. Well, thank you guys. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for your contributions to the community, both in uh, organizing meetups in attending meetups and attending conferences. 
and uh, libraries, everything, you know, and that goes for you too in the audience. We appreciate all the things that you do to help make this community a greater place to live and a more welcoming place for other people to join. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.